0: Uh, we're going to continue on our series, uh, part four in our series, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, and encourage you to go online to our website, and you can listen to those messages uh, or to our, our podcast and uh, check it out, but uh, it's, it's been a good series. I felt like uh, I've learned a lot, and I feel like I've been challenged a lot. I hope you have too. Uh, I have a lot of people that. Text or email me throughout the week and say, Pastor, (laughs) uh, what you talked about is exactly what we needed for the moment, and uh, it was very helpful. So uh, let's do a real quick review, and uh, we'll kind of get going here today and and, uh, see what some of the things we talked about. So um, let's see. Well, we started talking about the fact that this is a very important thing to discuss because we all want to have less regrets in our life. If remember when we started our series four weeks ago... I had you raise your hand if you had some regrets that you wish you would have made better decisions. And we're all honest, and we all raised our hand. We all have the woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? And so I just think this is such an important thing to discuss. We talk about decision-making a lot, and as the pastor of the church, listen, church, I want, I want all of us, myself included, to make good decisions. I don't, I don't want us to be a church full of people that are just bad decision-makers. I just want us to make good decisions financially, how we raise our kids, uh, what we do with our time, uh, how we're involved in our local church. Uh, I just, it, it's so important that we, we just live this time out and we just live the life to the fullest with as minimal regrets as we can. And, and we talked about the fact that the decisions that we make do affect people around us. Uh, it may take a lifetime for those effects to be seen. Not just the decisions, but our, our regrets affect those people around us. Uh, and, and remember we talked about that. <laughs> Imagine George Washington 200-something years ago when they asked him to be king of the United States of America? What if George Washington had said yes? Well, then we'd be a monarchy right now, right? We'd have a king. And um, uh, so his one little decision, saying no, has affected the entire world, literally, for the last 200-some-odd years. So it's a pretty big deal. And and we looked at the fact that every decision that we make really is a steering wheel for our life. Our our life experiences they follow the decisions that we make. We talked about this verse, Proverbs chapter twenty-two, verse three: A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. And this is a really important verse. If we were to kind of rewrite it and look at it again, we'd say the prudent sees danger and they take refuge, but simple people or people that are are not prudent, not wise, they keep going. They pay the penalty. They suffer for it. So a wise person sees the problem ahead and says, you know what, (laughs) this isn't going to end well, and they make a change in direction, right? I don't like the way this is going. This is not going to be good. A simple person, a foolish person, a naive person really is the way to say it, says, oh, I see a problem. Huh, that's going to hit weird, you know, and they just keep going. And they pay the penalty for it. And, and sometimes those regrets take a lifetime to pay. And so this is a very important verse, and we, we kind of studied that and looked at that and, and thought about how important it is. And, and then we looked at the fact uh, the other week about just <laughs> this sobering fact that, that we have done more to undermine our own success and our own progress than any, under, any other individual on the planet. And, and we're, we're sometimes our own worst enemy, aren't we? We, because we've been the ones that have made the decisions. Sure, there's been other people that have influenced us, other people that have made decisions around us, but the bottom line is, is we've done more to undermine our, our own progress than anybody else. I mean, we could blame all day we want on other people, but we're the ones that are always there. We're the center of all those problems, aren't we? And, uh, and so we asked ourselves a couple questions that we need to learn to ask ourselves honestly a couple questions. And if we could learn to ask some of these questions then we can hopefully make better decisions. So the first question that we talked about was this, am I being honest with myself? So when you're faced with a decision that you have to make, the first question you need to ask yourself about why you're making that decision is, am I being honest with myself really? And, and being serious about that. And then we talked about the fact of, uh, of not just um, asking yourself if I'm being honest with the question, but, but making decisions that... Um, Uh, maybe they're not wrong, maybe they're all right, maybe they're illegal, maybe it's permissible, maybe it's immoral, maybe it's acceptable, but the bottom line is to ask yourself, instead of, like, how low can I go, what's legal, what's okay, Uh, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the wise thing to do? So not always what is the legal thing to do, what's the permissible thing to do, what's the acceptable thing to do, what is the wise thing to do, okay? So question number one was, am I being honest with myself, and then question number two is, what is the wise thing to do? And that's the maturity question. So, we're going to get started today, and today's question is going to be the relationship question. And um, th- this one's, this one's going to take a little bit to, to explain, and a little bit to kind of get into. But the, the benefit, really, of asking the relationship question, and I'm going to tell you what the question is in a few minutes, um, is, is this. Here's the benefit. The benefit is the relationship question if we can learn to ask this question, it will positively, I believe, impact every single relationship that you're in. So whether it's a spouse or a a dating relationship or a relationship with your children or a relationship with your parents or your coworkers, it has the power to restore broken relationships, to heal relationships. It has the power to, to even rekindle romance. It has the power to just change things for the long time but the interesting thing about this question that we're going to learn today, the relationship question, is that this question has no guaranteed ROI. You know what that is? Those of you in the business world, what's ROI? Return on investment. If we ask ourselves the other questions, there's pretty much an immediate return on investment. But when you ask yourself the relationship question, there really is no guaranteed return on investment because the, the reality is, is you're going to deal with other people in relationships and, and just because you're doing the right thing doesn't always mean the people that you're with or the people in your relationship doesn't always mean that they're going to do the right thing. Or just because you're trying to make a better decision and make your life better doesn't actually, honestly, mean that they're going to try to make their life better as well. So, with that in mind, take your Bible. Let's get going. We got to get cracking here tonight. I heard there's no Sunday night service, so I can't finish this tonight. We got to get this done today. If you got your Bible, uh, 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 you're going to need that here in just a minute. Um, Let's talk, about, let's talk about Easter. Let's talk about um, Passover Sunday, Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. Do you remember what one of the last things that Jesus did with his disciples is what? Is he got together with them and he had a dinner. Do you remember the story? He had what we call the Last Supper. Now, kind of interesting, we have to think about that just for a minute. Everything that Jesus talked about up until this moment... Everything that Jesus talked about in this moment was always an anticipation of something coming. Do you kind of ever notice that when you study the New Testament out? He's like, something big's happening, something great's going to happen, something dramatic's going to happen. something new is coming uh, is coming. There's something on the horizon that's going to that's change everything. And every time that Jesus gave a parable, every time he talked about the future, every time he kind of gave a hint, there was always some kind of an expectation that something better was coming. We get down to what is the Last Supper, Jesus with his disciples. Now, we have to remember a couple things about that night. Remember this. The disciples didn't know that that was the Last Supper, right? Now, the Last Supper, when Jesus had that dinner, the Passover dinner with the disciples, remember this too. The disciples didn't know what was going to take place in the next 24 hours. We do, right? We know that that next afternoon Jesus was going to, hang on a cross, and die to pay man's sin. But remember this, church, the disciples didn't know that. So when Jesus talks to them and what he says that night, what's going through their mind at that moment was probably not the same thing that when we hear the story is going through our mind because we look over our shoulder and we say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know. I know what Jesus did, right? I know what took place at the cross. I know that. But at that moment, when the disciples were having the Last Supper, they didn't know what was happening in the future. Remember, what did the disciples think? The disciples thought that Jesus was going to do some political type of maneuver. They were thinking, remember, that the the kingdom was at hand. Think about that. Palm Sunday, we talked about this just just a couple months ago. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Remember that? The, 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 The grand entrance, right? This triumphal entrance. And what did everyone think? They weren't thinking, oh, he's going to die on a cross. What were they thinking? They were thinking, this guy's going to change the world. This is a political revolution. We're going to get rid of Rome. We're going to have Jerusalem back the way it's supposed to be. And this is going to be such an exciting thing. And and, and the disciples, the night of the the Last Supper, the, the disciples really, and you see it kind of even those last few weeks and few months, they're really kind of jockeying for a position, aren't they? They're like, well, who's going to be the best? Like, you know, who's going to sit, at, who's going to be like the vice president? Like, you're the president, who's going to be the vice, you know, you're the king, who's going to be the assistant king, you know? And that's kind of what they, what they have in their mind, that's kind of what they think is coming up, and, and they don't, they don't really get this, and, and Jesus starts to tell them that he's going to leave, remember, remember that at the last supper, and he says, I'm going to go away. Now, this is a big deal, I'm just trying to paint the picture so you get it. The disciples, imagine their shock, hmmm. Excuse me, you're gonna leave. (laughs) You're kind of like our security blanket. You've always been here. The crowds are always here for you. The crowds have been getting a little hostile lately, but you've always found a way out of it. If you're gone, that means what? That means that we're all alone. This is not a comforting thing, Jesus, what you're telling us. This is not a good thing. And if you disappear, we're probably going to disappear, but probably not for the right reasons, and, and why would you go? I mean, you're supposed to have this revolution, you're supposed to change things, and, and things are supposed to get better, and, and, and then what Jesus says, and here's what I want to get to, then what Jesus says, what Jesus says, now put yourself in their shoes, literally kind of knocks them off their shoes. Now, you'd have to put yourself in their shoes, understanding what they're going through, <laughs> The problem is when we read in a moment what Jesus told them, it doesn't doesn't rock our life. It doesn't knock us over. It doesn't put us back on our heels. It doesn't send us reeling. Matter of fact, when I read to you what Jesus said, most of you, I shouldn't say most of you, a lot of us may sit there and go like this, I've heard that before. It doesn't mean as much to us today because we're so stinking used to it. We've heard it so many times, it's like, oh yeah, (sighs) that's what Jesus said, yeah. But at the time he said this, it's like, whoa, are you kidding me? And and in light of what's going to take place in the next 24 hours with Jesus, this this really, really sends the disciples kind of for a loop, and, and it's kind of a really big deal because because what Jesus is going to say here, what we're going to read here in a minute, it, it sets the stage for what happens the next day. And that's what? Jesus dying on the cross. It kind of paints the picture. And, and, but they don't get this. They don't understand this. And, and they don't really really see what, what he's talking about. So this is the big thing. So so here's what he says. And, and, and when I read this, my hope, my hope for you and for me, literally, is that we hear them as if, as literally as if it's the first time we've ever heard it, okay? So put yourself in those shoes 2,000 years ago. You're one of the disciples. You're sitting at the table. You're ready for a political revolution. It's a Passover week. And Jesus says this, okay? So don't yawn. Don't be bored with what he says. I want you to think of this as if this is the first time you've ever heard it. If you've got your Bible, look over in the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right from the New Testament, Third book over, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book over, John chapter 13, verse 34. John chapter 13, verse 34. Let's take a look at the beginning of what he says. Jesus says this to the disciples. Ready? This is what he says. A new commandment I give unto you. Time out, pause, church, go with me on this for a little bit. Jesus says a new commandment. Just a side note. Who are you to give us a commandment? Well, the only person that give us a new commandment is who is God himself right there's, there's, this, there's this deity that you 're not just another guy he 's kind of reminding them, listen, <laughs> I'm the one that can give commandments here, and i 'm going to give you a new commandment It's kind of interesting if you if we th- sit on that for a minute, Jesus had already given them a lot of commandments, right Well, we have the ten commandments in the Bible. If you read the book of like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see there's six hundred plus instructions and commandments, so now there's another commandment but but Jesus already gave them a new commandment. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier? Take your Bible, go back to the book of Matthew. Again, I just want this to be in context. Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Here's the commandment that Jesus gave to them. Jesus said unto them, this is is earlier in the ministry, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, Verse 39. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So Jesus had already told these disciples, listen, I know you've got ten commandments. I know you've got 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus says, listen, I want you to love God and I want you to love others. So that's like the commandment that he gives earlier in the ministry. And that's a big thing. But, but these are the ones that we know. And now the disciples are sitting there and now he says, I'm going to give them a new commandment. Now think for a moment, church. Think. I'm going to give you a new commandment. Does that mean that this is commandment number three? I don't think this is number three, guys. I think this is commandment to replace all the other commandments. I think he says, I'm giving you a new one. Everything else I've said, everything else has happened, okay, this is the one commandment. This is the new one. This one supersedes. This one plays out better than all the other commandments. This one replaces all the other commandments. This new commandment that I'm going to give to you, this one... Not only supersedes everything else, but, but this one explains everything else, okay? You're not going to understand what's going to happen in the next 24 hours, but this one, this one's going to explain everything. This one is going to start to paint the picture a little bit better. And so here's what it gets. Go back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 34. Here's the new command. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now, just think kind of already said that before, right? But, but he says it again here, I want you to love one another. Now, it's interesting because he says, I'm not asking you to feel something. I'm not asking you to understand something. I'm asking you to do something. And, 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 and then what he says next, let's keep going, go down and look at the rest of the verse. This one, this is unthinkable. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. Wow. Church, who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. This is the the Last Supper. They don't know what's going to take place tomorrow. I'm telling you, this commandment supersedes all other commandments. I'm telling you this. You love one another. How? As I have loved you that you also love one another. I want you to love other people as I have loved you. Now, at the moment, and again, at the moment, church, we look back and we get it because, because we know what happened. But imagine what those people were thinking, those disciples were thinking at that night. I mean, imagine, imagine you're sitting there at the table and he says, I want you to love other people as I have loved you. When I read that, I think of the cross, right? Everyone's thinking of the cross, but they, they didn't think of the cross because they didn't know about the cross, right? This is before the cross. So what are they thinking? Well, let's say let's who's sitting at the table? Well, Matthew's sitting at the table. We could talk about Matthew for a moment. Uh, what was Matthew? Who knows what Matthew's job was? He was a what? He was a tax collector, which means what? He basically, he worked for Rome. <laughs> uh, he collected their money. He funded, he funded Rome's, Rome's dirty work. Uh, he probably wasn't liked by the Jews, right? Because tax collectors were known to be dishonest. They, you know, your taxes are, you know, whatever. You owe 5%. Well, you really owe 25%. Uh, kind of like what we have in our nation right now. Same idea that tax collectors aren't necessarily honest. And so Matthew's life as a tax collector, he was probably despised by the Jews. He's probably hated by people. Uh, he, 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 no one wanted to be his friend. I mean, he's the guy that took their money legally, and I'm going to give it to the people that are occupying our nation, and I'm going to fund the war machine that has you in bondage. See how this is just not a good thing? It's like This is not a popular job, and Matthew was probably a very rich person because of it, and Matthew probably had bodyguards, and Matthew probably had Rome watching over his shoulder. But think about Jesus saying this. I want you to love other people as I have loved you. Imagine Matthew and Jesus kind of looking at each other for that that moment, and just think about that. Matthew and Jesus kind of looking at each other, and Jesus reminding Matthew, and I don't know if this really took place or not, but Matthew, yeah, I have loved you. I, I called you to follow me. and Matthew, I showed you grace. When no one else would show you grace, I showed you love. I showed you mercy. I didn't remember your past. I didn't hold that against you. I didn't, I didn't dangle it over you. I didn't, I didn't drag you through the mud. I asked you to come follow me, and I showed grace. I showed mercy to you. I showed compassion to you that's probably what was going through let's say Matthew's mind at the time I want you to love other people as I have loved you and Matthew probably thought well Jesus was merciful and gracious to me he didn't he didn't drag me through the mud he he treated me differently than other people's treated me and and he cares for me and he's 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 watched out for me and he's been merciful to me these last few years together all right that must be what he's talking about, that, that, that is how he's treated me. And, and well, I, we could all stop right there without going through the room. Imagine if you were go- in the room, okay? Just think for a moment. Think for a moment. I mean, just be honest. Where were you when you first trusted Christ as your Savior? Where were you? What were you doing when you first understood that Jesus Christ had died on the cross and paid your sin debt? What were you doing? hmm right? What was your background? We could go around the room and talk about our testimonies and talk about our history. Friday night at our our addiction recovery program, we had three of the people in our program give their testimonies about where they came from and and, and how God uh, uh, changed their life in the last few years or so. And it was a wonderful time Friday night. Think about where you were. Think about if you were sitting at the table, what would that conversation have been like? What would it look like? Well, where was I when Jesus when Jesus helped me, when Jesus saved me. What was I doing? It wasn't too pretty, was it? It wasn't too good, was it, right? And, and this is probably what Matthew was thinking. This is probably what the other guys were thinking. And, 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 and I remember what Jesus was doing for me, and I remember how he showed me grace, and he showed me mercy. Well, okay, well, that, that's maybe something that I should do for the future. But, but then he goes on and he says this. Go down to the next verse. John chapter 13, verse 35. And you start to see the picture. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. So in other words, he tells these disciples, disciples, listen, they're not going to know that you're a follower of Jesus because you went to church on Sunday. They're not going to know that you're a follower of Jesus if you bring another lamb to sacrifice on, on the Sabbath. Okay? They're not going to know if you're a follower of Jesus because you obeyed one of the 600-plus commandments. They're not. They're not. How are they going to know that you're a follower of Christ? How are they going to know that you're a Christian? Look at the verse. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. What do you say in the verse before it? As I have loved you. If you start to show love and start to treat the person you're sitting next to the same way that I have treated you, the world is going to look at you and say, you know what? They must be a Christian. There's something different about them, not because they went to church, not because they gave a tithe. not because they wore a tie on Sunday, not because they brought a a nicer lamb to the, the, the slaughter, not because they obeyed all the rules. No, they're going to know that you're a Christian because you treat them, you love them the same way that Christ has shown love for you. And and this he's literally saying. Listen, this is going to be the litmus test. This is what's going to be. This is how the world's going to get turned upside down, uh, upside down. This is how people are going to authenticate the love that you have for Jesus Christ is by the way that you show love for other people, and 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 the way that that you show the sacrificial love that I have for you, you show it to other people. Okay, with that picture in mind, with that story in mind. What is the question that we're going to look at today? The question, I'm calling it the relationship question. We had, remember, the integrity question. We had the maturity question, and this is the relationship question. What is the relationship question? With that in mind, what we just talked about, here's the question. What does love require of me? We talked about the first week, asking yourself the question, am I being honest with myself, really? When I make this decision... Am I really being honest with myself? Am I telling myself the truth? Last time we were together, we talked about not what's legal, not what's permissible, permissible, not what's acceptable. What is the wise thing for me to do? Okay, that's the question we ask. What is the wise thing to do? Today, the question that we're looking at is what does love require of me? To do what 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 when I'm making a decision, when I'm faced with a relationship or a financial decision or, or an interaction with someone or a boss or a coworker or a family, then I have to make a decision. This is not about us, this is not about me benefiting. The question is this what does love require me to do? Not what's legal, not what's permissible, not what's acceptable, but what does love require for me to do? If we start, listen, if we could get this in our brain, church, and, and we talked about this actually in our Bible study this morning, those of you in the membership class, that this informs us how we date. This informs us how we have relationships. This informs us how we should parent. This informs us how we should be a boss. This informs us how we should manage. This informs us how we should coach. It sets a perimeter on, on our coworkers and our spouse and our neighborhood and our friends, and, and, and it gives a voice. It gives a voice for God's will for us and the many issues in the Bible that that there's not a black and white answer for. When, When the Bible's silent on an issue, we can always ask this question, what does love require for me to do? Jesus told his disciples, I want you to show love for the people next to you the same way that I showed love for you. The same way that I showed grace, the same way that I showed mercy the same way that, that, that I put up with, the same way that I was, was long-suffering for, I want you to do that for the person you're sitting next to. And, and, and when you're not sure about what to do, when you don't know what to do, when you don't know what kind of decision you should make, if we learn to ask ourselves this question, what does love require me to do, it starts to answer that question pretty clearly. Because it's not about what's right, it's not about what's wrong, it's not about show me the verse, I want to see the verse. No, the, the, the question is, what does love require me to do? When I'm parenting and I don't know how to be the parent I'm supposed to be, you ask yourself the question what does love require for me to do? As I attend church and I'm involved in my local church, what does love require for me to do? When I'm in my marriage and there's relationship issues or dating issues and, 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 and I don't know how to treat someone or I don't know what to do or not to do, what does love require? for me to do when I am loved the way that I've been loved, when when I'm treated the way that I've been treated. And and, and when we look at the Bible, guys, think about this for a moment. Let's take a break on that for a moment. Let's go this way. When you think about the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels and the story about Jesus, the rest of the New Testament, guys, think about this for a minute. The rest of the New Testament after the Gospels isn't more commandments. It's not When Paul wrote to the churches, he wasn't giving them more rules. He's just explaining what Jesus told the disciples. I want you to show love to the people you're next to. The whole rest of the New Testament isn't about new rules and new regulations. It's about what does love look like? What does it mean to live the life as a Christian amongst other people? That's what love looks like. That's, what it, that's how it plays out in the real world. When, when we look at what Paul talked about to the churches, it, it, it was real-world applications about what Jesus' command to those disciples really looks like. It, it's just playing it out. It's just, it's just drawing it up for more. For instance, take your Bible. Let's go all the way over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Oh, man, i got to move. 1 Corinthians. Uh, kind of a small book over to the right side of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians was written to a church. Chapter 13 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul Paul paints a picture, it's not new, he just paints a picture of what does love look like. Jesus told you to love others as I have loved you. Okay, so what does love look like? Well, here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, look at verse 4. Charity, that's the word for love. It's just an old English word for love. Charity or love, what does love look like? Well, love suffers long, it's kind, Love envies not. Love vaunts not itself. it's not puffed up. In other words, in other words, church, love is patient. It, 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 it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor. Think about that. It doesn't dishonor. It, 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 it's, it's not disgraceful to other people. It's, it's not indecent to other people. Th- that's what love looks like. It's not prideful. It's it's not proudful. It doesn't dishonor the church. Pause right there in that first verse. That's a definition of love right there. When Jesus said, I want you to show love to the person you're sitting next to, just like I showed love to you. And again, church, we look back at that night 2,000 years ago, and we know what's going to take place, what took place the next day. Christ died on the cross to pay our sin debt. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate example of love, He did for us first. He set the example first, so we have no excuse not to show love to someone else. And here Paul's just painting the picture. This is what it is. This is what it looks like. It's patient. The person you're sitting next to, your spouse, your children, your parents, your coworker. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It, it doesn't dishonor. It's not. It's not disgraceful. It's not dis, uh, indecent with people. That's what love looks like when you're going to treat other people, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, your family. That's what love looks like. Married couples, it's patient. Yeah, it's patient. It puts up with. Look at the next verse. Verse five. Love doesn't behave itself unseemingly. Love seeks not her own, like doesn't look for herself. It's not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. In, in, in other words, this, love doesn't create regret. It doesn't create regret. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It doesn't keep the score. <laughs> this can turn into a marriage seminar real fast. Love it doesn't keep the score. The best way that I've seen to illustrate that, what do I mean by not keeping the score? It's simply like this. It doesn't have a file cabinet. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wife, let's take a look at five years ago. Right here. I got the file. Let's pull it out, wifey. Love doesn't keep the score. Love, love doesn't, it doesn't have a file cabinet. Amen, church. It gets rid of it. no. Biocabin. It it's not easily angered. It doesn't keep the score. It it conveniently forgets the bad. Whoa, that's a tough one. It conveniently forgets the bad. Not not begrudgingly forgets the bad. It's not like, okay, fine. I'll forget it. Fine if I have to. Jesus made me. <laughs> it conveniently forgets the bad things. And then and then I wrote down this too, it elevates the good, it forgives, it, it pretends even sometimes that it forgets. <laughs> you know, when someone asks forgiveness from us, forgiveness is one thing, right? Trust is another thing. And, and when someone asks for forgiveness as Christians, just like breathing, we have to learn to forgive people. It has to be as natural as breathing. And, and sometimes, sometimes we, uh, I got to forgive that person. Uh, That's probably best if I try to forget what that person did too. Love even pretends to forget, even when it can't. Well, I just can't. I just can't forget what that person did. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. That was awful what they did. That was terrible what they did. I don't know. But sometimes love has to pretend to forget it. Okay, I'm not going to keep bringing this up. I'm not going to keep dragging this person through it. That—that's. What does love require? That's the question we're asking today. What does love require? This is what love requires. Are you tracking with me? Did you get this so far? Let's look at the last verse here that explains it. Uh, two more verses here. Number, verse number six. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So love doesn't delight in evil. Love rejoices in what's true. Now, think for a moment, church. It, <laughs> what did I write? It doesn't delight in evil? <clears throat> church, there's a lot of Facebook delighting that goes on that ought not to be happening, all right? Some of us need to get off Facebook and social media. Facebook is drawing us, and I'm picking on Facebook, I'll just say social media, is drawing us into a society that we delight, we delight in what's evil. It, it, we, we, we thrive on what's evil. We, we, we get a high on, we're excited about, we're challenged on, What's evil? Church, if your Facebook interactions are, are, are to the point to where it's almost kind of delighting in evil or you're laughing at or you're watching at or you're participating at or you're giving a like or you're hanging out there, that's not what love is. That's not Jesus' description of love, okay? Because, because love doesn't delight in evil. Love rejoices with what's true. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to rejoice in what's true because it's not fun. It was, but it's true, and love rejoices in what's true. How about this? I, I wrote this down too. Love always protects. Love keeps harmful things out of a relationship. Think about that. Something that's harmful, instead of rejoicing and bringing the evil into a relationship, love does whatever it can to keep the evil out of a relationship. It protects that relationship. It makes sure that the evil stays out, harmful things stay out. Love doesn't seek to win an argument. Love works to protect the relationship. Love chooses to trust. That's what love does. It makes a conscious decision, I'm going to trust that person. That's tough. That's really hard. Verse 7 Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes for all things, love endures all things. And and this is this last little part of this little piece of, this little phrasing here that he has. It always hopes, it always uh, preserves, it always protects. Church, what does love require of us? That's what love requires of us. That's, That's the relationship question right there. That's what love requires of us. That's what, that's what love demands from us. That's what love wants for us. If these are the behaviors or responses we consciously or subconsciously expect from other people, shouldn't they be required from us as well? When we read that definition of love, don't we read those? Now think, church, boy, I sure wish my husband treated me like those verses about love. I wish he did those for me. I wish my boss treated me that way. I wish my kids treated me that way. We all want other people to show love to us, amen? We all want other people to treat us that way, amen? Well, Jesus said, okay, they may not treat you that way. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you treating other people that way, even if they don't respond. Remember, guys, this. Just because God called us to love others as he has loved us, listen, that's what I was talking about when I said sometimes there's not a return on the investment. Just because God's called you to do it as a Christian doesn't mean that your boss or your coworker or your spouse or your parents or your in-laws or whoever else doesn't mean that they will treat you the way that God's called for us to treat. They may not even be Christian. They don't even know what you're talking about. But God didn't say, wait for them to treat you that way and then treat them that way. It says, I want you to show love to other people regardless of how they treat you. And Jesus was the one that set the example. He's the one that did it first, right? We could talk all day about him dying on the cross and the beatings and, and, and how terrible it was. Jesus didn't wait for it. Well, when the Jews get it right, then I'll die on the cross. When they finally accept me as king and savior, then I'll die on the cross. He didn't wait for that. Jesus didn't wait for for you to to know how good he was to die on the cross. No, Jesus died on the cross regardless of how sinful and how dark we were. He said, You know what, I'm I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna wait for for them to get straightened out in order for me to do the right thing. And 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 this is really what it kind of comes down to church when we're making decisions to have better decisions, to have fewer regrets. It's really what does love require of me? What does the Lord even require of me? And, and guys, listen, there's a lot of things in the Bible that I don't understand, and, and when it comes down to, I always have people asking me questions, well, well, Pastor, what does the Bible say about this, or what does the Bible say about that, or how come the Bible's silent on this, or listen, in today's society, guys, I'm just being honest, there's a lot of things in today's society I don't have an answer for, I just don't have an answer for, I don't, I don't have an answer for it. The Bible's silent on an awful lot of issues, but I do know this, the Bible's not silent on what love requires, okay? Jesus was pretty clear what he wanted us to do. Regardless if I gave you in black and white, you know I have people do that? They'll come, and, they'll come and, and seek counseling from me and we'll be talking about relationship or family issues and I'll give them some advice. Well, I think this would be the wise thing to do. I think this is what a loving person should do. Well, where's that in the Bible? You're a legalist. How come I don't see a chapter and verse on it? Time out, time out. There's probably not a chapter and verse on it. I, I just don't know. It, the Bible's probably not as silent on this issue and how to respond. I don't know. But what does love require for us to do? What does what is the wise thing for us to do? As a Christian, how should a Christian respond in this situation? That's what love requires of us is to respond in that loving way. So let's wrap up our whole series real quick. Good decisions, I'm sorry, good questions lead to better decisions. Your decisions determine the direct, uh, direction of the quality of your entire life. Your decisions are going to create a story of your life. Remember to write a good story. So, number one, tell yourself the truth, even if the truth makes you feel bad about yourself. The second question was, raise your standard of living from what's legal and acceptable and permissible to what's the wise thing to do. And then, what does love require of me to do? Okay? Guys, if all of us, and I'm speaking to myself too, can get this in our small little brains and understand this, if we can start to just ask, and there's more questions, I'm sure there's more, but if we could just get those three questions nailed in our brain and, and make decisions based on those three questions, huh, I guarantee you all of us will live a life with better decisions and having less regrets, and the world will look at us and say, you know what, there's something different about those people. They'll know that we're a Christian, Why? Because of our love. That's what Jesus said. That's what's going to be the defining factor. That's what's going to be the litmus test for the world to see it, Is we're going to want to see us treating the world like Jesus treated us. All right? How did Jesus treat us? What was the main thing? What do we talk about? Well, the crucifixion 2,000 years ago is what? Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin debt. John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, believes in who? Believes in the fact that Jesus, what? Died on the cross to pay our debt, to pay the mortgage, That person who believes that fact should not perish but has everlasting life. For by grace are you saved, the Bible says, through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not being good. It's a gift of God. What's the gift of God? Again, when Jesus Christ paid your debt for you, it's not a work lest any man should boast. Jesus set the example, the ultimate example of what does love require of us. Love required that he die on the cross to pay our mortgage because we can't pay it. Th- that's what love required, and that's what Jesus did. And the disciples didn't get it, did they? They couldn't have got it. We barely start to grasp it 2,000 years later. Church, what does love require of us to do? Okay? Let's have a word of prayer, and let's be done today. Father, we're thankful for our Bible study today. Lord, some sobering words that don't seem to benefit us, but they're important. They ultimately, they benefit a relationship, but sometimes we don't see it in this lifetime. Lord, maybe someone today is trusting you as Savior. Maybe someone today came in thinking they had to be good. Someone came in today thinking they had to go to church or give money to go to heaven. Someone came in today thinking they had to be baptized. Lord, I pray that they would understand that salvation is a free gift. It's not a work. It's not something they they strive for. It's It's not anything they do on their part that gets them to heaven. It's simply believing that Jesus Christ, he did the work. He did the heavy lifting. He paid the sin debt so we wouldn't have to. It's understanding, it's accepting that fact Jesus died in my place. I accept that today. Lord, maybe someone's done that today. Would you give them a special blessing and bring them back to our Bible studies again on Sunday so that they can grow and learn more about the God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. are very interested in you and your spiritual growth. If you want to contact Dayspring for prayer or more information, you can reach us at 262-404-5092 or on the web at dayspringbaptist.com. Thanks for listening.